Our Father, we were in darkness when you, the light, came into the world and shed your light upon us. And we thank you that you have brought us, by your grace, into the light. We pray that you would shine that light deep into our hearts. I don't know what uh, we need to hear. Perhaps it's a word of encouragement. Perhaps it's conviction. But you know what we need. And, we, and, you, and, and your word is broad enough in scope to address our needs um, individually. And we pray that you would do that this morning as we consider this, um, this text of Scripture. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's very tempting for us to think that the life of faith is, is going to be smooth sailing, right? If God is for us, who could be against us? I mean, shouldn't life be marked by smooth waters, calm, you know, a calm setting for our lives? And yet we find that it's, it's not that way. In fact, there's significant struggle and suffering and conflict that comes upon us directly as a result of our, of our faith. Of our faith in Christ. And, you know, it's, it's tempting for us to think that when we are struggling, that maybe God is, is not with us. We wonder, like, what are, you, what are you doing, God? Why are you leaving me to this struggle, to this conflict, to this suffering? But the life of faith is a struggle. I mean, this is, this is Christmas time, and we've sung of the silent night that marked Christ's arrival in the world. And whether that night was silent or not, I don't, I don't know. I've always kind of wondered about that. I don't know if it was that, that quiet, uh, new, newborn. But, but what, here's what we do know. Shortly after that silent night, there was blood in the streets of Bethlehem. The blood of baby boys throughout the city. And, and, and following the birth, Mary and Joseph and Jesus make their way as refugees to flee that, that genocide in, into Egypt. Right? right there, off the bat, Christ is thrown into the midst of suffering, struggle, conflict that his very arrival created in Bethlehem. And so when we think about the struggle and conflict that we face in our own lives, it, it, it makes sense because there's kind of three arenas of conflict, three arenas of struggle. There's the world, there's the flesh, and there's the devil. The life of faith means that we are, we are taking on those three things. The world, the, the culture, that humanity alienated from God is doing what God commanded in the garden. We're building cities, we're taking... Uh, the world. This is not to say that the world's bad, that God created the world and he commanded us to take his creation and to develop it, to take clay and stone and build buildings, to take our minds and organize and build institutions of, of learning, of governing, of commerce, of entertainment. We're doing those things, but here's the problem. All of us are... As, as on the whole, are alienated from God. And so we're building them in a twisted, perverse sort of way. 
And that creates problems. That creates a world to reckon with. It's not to say that the world is bad, but there's, there's discernment and wisdom that's required to navigate that kind of world. And then there's our flesh. Like we're broken. We're rebellious. We have these desires that are not fit for the way we've been built. Listen to what Richard Lovelace says regarding this, the, the struggle of the flesh. He says, Every, everyone who attempts just for one day to lead a life centered on God and his kingdom will discover that they have a battle on their hands. This ideal is simply not a possibility for human nature. We don't have in, our, in ourselves the wellspring of a love which will delight in God and constantly seek to obey his will. Nor are we able to care for others as we care for ourselves. Just for a day. And when we try to care for others as we care for ourselves, just for a single day, the inner struggle becomes so intense that we end up uglier people than before we started. Apart from the Holy Spirit's power in our lives, that's what we're up against when it comes to the flesh. And Christ has saved us from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin in our lives, indwelling sin, still has some power. And so we struggle against the flesh. And we have any, so there's the world, the flesh. We haven't even begun to talk about the struggle that we have with the devil, right? These unseen spiritual forces that are out to destroy us that would love to destroy us and to destroy those that we love. Okay? There's, you've seen movies where there's a whistleblower. Maybe there's a you know, corruption or, 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 or a conspiracy within the government and one person blows the whistle on it or in a, within a corporation and one person blows the whistle. And what happens to that person? All of the powers of that government all of the powers of that corporation are directed at stopping that person. And oftentimes through violent, threatening means. Okay? When we come to faith in Christ, we, all of a sudden, we who are following the course of this world, following the flesh, and on track with the work of Satan in the world, we all of a sudden turn around, and now we're working against the grain of all of those things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that creates friction, that creates conflict, that creates difficulty and struggle. When we turn in faith to God, we begin to walk this walk of faith and we're inviting struggle into our lives. And sometimes the struggle is so profound, so difficult, that we begin to wonder if God is even there. If he's just left us to the struggle, we experience what some have called the dark night of the soul. where We wonder if God's presence has left. If this is all just a big joke or a sham that he's not with us. And if you ever have that experience. You're not alone. Many of the scripture, the writers of scripture had that experience. Job. Face that difficulty. The, the Psalms are loaded with people crying out, God, where are you? Why have you left me? Why do my enemies prosper and I struggle and suffer? 
If your family, maybe if your family is experiencing division and is riddled with conflict, and maybe some of just, just a bit of that was exposed here at Christmas time. If you're experiencing that, take heart. The family of faith, the patriarchs, tons of conflict and struggle within the family. Our faith is for those who struggle and it leads to further struggling and suffering, suffering and conflict. And that we're going to see that in this Jacob story. We're, we're transitioning now from from Abraham and Isaac now to Jacob. And we're going to see lots of struggle. If there's one word to summarize the Jacob story. It would be conflict and struggle. This man experiences struggle after struggle. Many of the struggles he experiences are a result of his own foibles and failures. Some not. He experiences conflict upon conflict. But God is at work through it all. God's grace overcomes all of the conflict of Jacob's life and his family's life. And his salvific purposes stand. His saving purposes move forward. Through this Jacob story. So I want us, this birth of Jacob kind of sets the tone for the whole life of Jacob. And I want us to consider three things this morning three struggles. There's the struggle for life in the womb, there's the struggle within the womb, and then there's the struggle outside of the womb. So the struggle for life in the womb, the struggle within the womb, and then the struggle outside of the womb. So first, the struggle for life in the womb. And and by the way, we'll we'll consider finally how God's grace overcomes all of those struggles. So Father Abraham, you'll remember, back in Genesis chapter 12, was called by God to be a nation. He He was called up to be a nation that would become a blessing to all nations, to all the world. The big problem for Abraham and Sarah was that they were unable to have children. And not only that, they were now they were aging as the story progressed well beyond childbearing years. And yet God miraculously provides them with Isaac. And so and then Isaac, we learned a few weeks ago. Isaac meets Rebecca in this heartwarming love story. And you can hear Rebecca explaining the story to their, you know, their new friends. Yeah, I, uh, this man came to town and I, I extended hospitality and generosity to them. I, I gave him water and I asked if he would, if, if he wanted me to feed his 10 camels, which was like, you know, just kind of being nice. There's no way he would actually ask me to do that. I said, would you like me to feed your camels? He said, yeah, please do. And so I spent the next eight hours watering these camels, 250 gallons of water. And then we go to the house and Laban, my brother, hands me over to this man, to this servant, to marry his Isaac. And then Laban pulls back on the promise and then puts it in my lap. And I say, I will go and I go. And we're, the sun is setting at evening. Isaac is walking, meditating in the field. The hue is warm. Our eyes meet. I dismount. We embrace. And we love each other. It's this heartwarming story. It has, it's actually Disney material, this story. And by the way, it's the longest story in the whole book of Genesis. This love story between Isaac and Rebecca. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing story. Now you hear a story like that. And you think, that's a storybook. That's heartwarming. There's no, this, this thing 
is, is going to be great. But immediately there's struggle, there's suffering within this marriage. On the surface, it looks so great. Isaac's the promised one of God. Rebecca comes from not from the Canaanites. She comes from Abraham. Good stock, right? Abraham's family. Every, it's a match made in, her, in heaven. On the surface, everything looks great. And yet there's major struggle. Look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And there again, the struggle of barrenness. Nine chapters dealt with the struggle of barrenness in the life of Abraham. We spent nine chapters considering that struggle in Abraham's life. And we're, we're, I think what we're supposed to do here is inject all of the difficulty that we remember from reading the Abraham story right here into Isaac. Same thing. The struggle of barrenness. I mean, it's hard for me to state just the difficulty that this was for, for Isaac and Rebekah. Maybe some of you have experienced, maybe you, you are experiencing it. Infertility, it's difficult. It was especially difficult in this time. It was believed that if a person did not have children, they were cursed by God. So there's doubt regarding God's blessings. Is God really with us? Rebecca is doubting her value and worth as a human being. Isaac is wrestling with serious economic concerns. If I'm aging, and not just economic, but military concerns, I'm aging and I have no children to take care of me and to provide and to, to protect me in my aging. All of these pressures are being felt by Isaac and Rebecca. And here's the thing. It goes on for 20 years that they're barren with no children. Because we learn at the, at the end of this passage, Isaac is 40 when he marries Rebecca, and he's 60 when they have children. A 20-year struggle with barrenness. And so Isaac has this struggle, and what does he do? He, comes, he goes to God in prayer. And in the span of just a single verse, the struggle, the 20-year struggle is resolved. Look at verse 21. The Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Bruce Waltke says regarding this, he says, barrenness is not an occasion for anxiety, but for sovereign grace in the life of Isaac and Rebecca. Right? I mean, just looking at this thing, everything's in place for Isaac and Rebecca to be thriving and to, to have children and all of that. But God brings them, brings them low through their circumstances so that in the end, again, another generation can see that God is making this thing happen. It's God's work. It's God's hand of grace that is overcoming their barrenness. Now, have you experienced trial in your life? Decades long trial, difficulty, suffering, testing. Why, why does God bring these things into our lives? Why do we have these struggles that go on for decades? Why does he do that? Why did it, why did it happen here? Why 20 years? No children. Well, generally, we can say what James said. He said, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have it have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These trials have a way of perfecting us. That's what God is doing. You, you, know, you know gold, that when, when gold is, um, is being perfected in the fires, the, the hotter the fire is, it burns away the, the impurities, the dross. And what's left in the end is pure gold, perfect perfection, gold. And so it is with our lives. At times, God turns the heat up in specific areas of our lives with these specific struggles that last, that can last decades. And he's perfecting us. He's building steadfastness, making us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Just like the gold lacks nothing. It's perfect. That's, that's what these trials do. And by prayer, God grants life in the womb. It comes as gift, as grace. But the struggle doesn't end there. Isaac and Rebecca, they conceive. And, and that presents a whole other challenge. Look at verse 22. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to, to, to me? Why is this happening? A 20-year struggle of barrenness is now replaced with a struggle, a power struggle that's taking place within the womb. And Rebecca asks what, what, any, what we all ask. Why is this happening to me? Why is one struggle after another coming my way? Why is there such turmoil within me? There's life now. We've gone from barrenness to life. But the life that is now there, there's, there's violence taking place. What's going on? And look, the answer that God brings uh, to, to Rebecca, the, 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 the answer of life in the womb brings a whole other host of challenges. Sometimes this happens. You know, you want to get married. You've been single, single, your desire is to get married. You've always dreamed of getting married and then you get married and then you think, I kind of like the background. There's difficulty. It's a whole nother struggle that comes your way. Or maybe you you, want to get into med school. You dream of being a doctor. You work hard for it and you you, you pull these all-nighters and you pass your tests and you get accepted and then you get to school and it's, it's even more challenging than all the prep work. Like the answer to prayer actually creates more struggle in your life. Or maybe it's the job that you've longed for, your dream job. It's what you've always wanted to be. And then you get into the work and you realize there's a lot of responsibility here. This is a lot harder than I expect. It's a whole new set of challenges. What did we say at the beginning? The Christian life, life in general, but particularly the Christian life, Involves struggle. And that's what we see here. It's a cascade of conflict and struggle in the life of Isaac, Rebecca, and Rebecca, and then the boys that they that Rebecca is carrying. And so Rebecca seeks an answer. And look at verse 22. She she inquires of the Lord in 23, verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. 
And two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So God says, you have twins. There's a struggle going on within you. And here's the, I don't, I don't know if it's good news. Would you want to hear this? Your, sibling, your, your twins are going to create two nations that are going to be warring for generations. Right? The struggle is not going to be limited to the womb. It's going to continue for generations. It's not the news that you would want to hear, but then there's something else. Look at what it said. Look at what God says. The older of the twins, the one that arrives first, will serve the younger. Now, this is mind blown. The older will serve the younger. It would be hard to overstate how entrenched the priority of the firstborn is in this culture over subsequent births. What God is doing here is he's flipping ordinary and established power structures that are entrenched in this culture. He's flipping it on its head. Listen to what one commentator, Walter Brueggemann, says. He says, this oracle about the older serving the younger speaks about an inversion. It affirms that we are not fated to the way the world is presently organized. Right? The way the world is presently organized in this day and age, firstborn priority. The younger serve the oldest. That's how it works. And here God is saying, the older shall serve the younger. And we saw this just at Christmas Eve, remember? The arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who will establish a government that will have no end, a kingdom that will have no end. And how does he arrive? With no place, soon to be refugee, on the run, in a feeding trough. Remember the king of the world, Caesar Augustus? What is he doing? He's, he's counting his, his people, his subjects. He's quantifying his power. That's what the kings of this world do. But God flips things. He, he, he inverts things. Okay, so there's conflict within the womb, but there's also conflict outside of the womb and struggle outside of the womb. This is our third point. Look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they named his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And the name Jacob means may the God El protect. That's what it means. But also there's double meaning. They love these double meaning because they can kind of get a lot of mileage out of the name. There's a double meaning. And within that may God protect, there's also the word heel. To remember that Jacob was grabbing the heel of Esau as he was coming out. And these things that happened out of birth were kind of considered, they were always kind of projected forward into the life of of the child. Now, what is a heel grabber? What does that even mean? Well, if you're grabbing somebody's heel, where are you? You're behind them, right? You're not not facing them face to face. You're behind them. It's sort of like you're you're backstabbing, right? 
you're, you're, you're playing trickery to grab somebody by the heel. You're coming in the back door, not the front. It's like you're just shooting straight. The, the best analogy to a heel grabber would be like a backstabber. Somebody that comes in from behind to surprise and to trick. And what we're going to see is that J- Jacob is a grabber of heels his whole life. He's a trickster. This is how he works. And yet still, somehow, God's grace is on him. And one of the major challenges of, of the text here is that Jacob is not very likable. In fact, Moses, who's telling the story, seems to, the way the story is told, and we'll see this, it almost seems like there's a, Esau is preferred. Like he's the sympathetic character in it all. But God's grace is on Jacob. Jacob reminds me a little bit of Lot. He's just not very likable. But here's, here's the thing. What matters less is the conduct of God's people. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But what matters more is God's grace upon his people. And that's what we're going to see. God is at work. But bear in mind, because God is working in the life of Jacob, because God's grace and favor is on him, that is going to mark Jacob for conflict and struggle, particularly with with Esau and, and the neighboring peoples. God's favor upon us means that he refuses to leave us as we are. And this is where we come to the need for fire to purify And this here is just the introduction to the life of Jacob, a life that's going to be marked by difficulty, struggle and conflict. And so it is with our own lives, like some of us struggle because of our own kind of tricks, our own um, faults, our own failures, our own rebellion, our own stubbornness to follow God that brings struggle into our lives. And for many of us, it, it happens simply by virtue of being aligned with God's kingdom in the kingdom of man, being a citizen of the city of God within the city of man. And there's conflict there that's just inevitable. But for those that are not satisfied with their lives and the world as it is, for those who want change, the good news of this passage is that God is working out his purposes through the conflict, through the struggle. That we in this world as Christians are aliens and sojourners, just like Abraham and Jacob, too. I don't know if you've ever been an alien, uh, if you've lived in another country uh, before. We lived in uh, England for for a a time. I mean, England. I mean, you know, maybe Canada would be a little less dramatic than England. It'd be hard to be less of an alien and still be an alien in any other country. But still, there's just a, what's a loo? What's a queue? Go stand in the queue. What's that? Um, what's the chemist shop? Uh, there's uh, in Northeast England. So I, you, we went in thinking there wouldn't be a language barrier. Turns out there, there is in Northeast England. They have an interesting accent, very strong, hard to discern for my ears to discern. So there's, there's, there's language challenges. We're that in the world. That creates an awkward, difficult, cumbersome relationship to the world around us. But we can take confidence knowing 
that what God is doing with his people is he's colonizing creation with his kingdom. That's what we are. We've said this many times that the church is a colony of heaven that will overcome the world. Let's return again to this Brueggemann quote. I think it's really important for understanding not just this story, but but the whole story of salvation. Again, Brueggemann says that the oracle that Rebecca receives, that the older will serve the younger, speaks about an inversion, a, a flipping. It affirms, praise God, that we are not fated to the way the world is presently organized. The way you see the world, humanity is not fated to that. God is flipping things. He's inverting things. There's going to be a lot of sports coming up in the weeks ahead, a lot of bowl games, basketball, um, and other things. I, we, our family likes sports, and I think one of the reasons we enjoy sports is because it's unscripted drama. You know, you, you don't know how it's going to turn out. And, 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 and the, some of my favorite sports moments are when, is when the underdog, the team that has no power, no money, small, um, poorly ranked, maybe not the greatest coach, plays the big dog. And they're losing. They lack the whole game. It just feels like the, the other team's dominating, winning. And then somehow the little team fights and claws and fights and claws. At the very end, there's an inversion of power, right? The little guy wins. The underdog in surprising fashion. That's a great moment. That's what God is doing in the world. He is bringing about a great inversion of creation. The arrival of Christ, the incarnation that we're speaking of, is an inversion. The king of the universe becomes a servant, becomes a slave. The one who was blessed becomes cursed. The one who had no sin bore the sin of the world upon the cross. And for us, too, there's an inversion, right? We who are slaves become kings and queens who co-reign with Christ over all of creation. We who are cursed by God become blessed by God. We who are in sin become sinless. This is the inversion that God is orchestrating throughout creation. Now, what about the struggling that marks this life of faith? What about your struggling and conflict and suffering? Well, there's an inversion there, too. Paul speaks of all of creation groaning with the pains of childbirth. That it's like creation is about to give way to a new creation. But there's pain in that process. It's a beautiful image. Because for for mothers who have delivered babies, you know that there is pain and difficulty and trial in that process. But there's an inversion of emotion, right? Right? All of that difficulty and anguish and trial, once the child is born, is replaced, inverted with joy and excitement and adulation so much that you forgot everything that preceded it. And you may have another child at some point in the future. Right? That's an inversion. That's what God is doing in creation. He's inverting things. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your good word to us that is powerful. We ask that it would transform us more into the image of your son. 
We thank you for the sweeping turn of events that have happened to us in Christ. Um, It's even more dramatic than the older serving the younger. We who were dead in sin, following the course of this world and under the power of of Satan, Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, we've been um, made alive. We've been lifted up to heaven to co-reign with Christ and we are being built into your workmanship. We thank you for those promises and we pray that you would apply them to our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.